Welcome to the Untoxicated Podcast. <laughs> well, I'm Sherry Salis, and that was my husband, Matt. We have questions about the impact of alcohol and addiction on relationships. If you have those kinds of questions, too, you're in the right place. Here we go. Sherry, there are so many recovery words, terms, and phrases that get used so much that they begin to rub people the wrong way or feel like they're overused. I know for me, there's some of the old-timey words that are related to 12-step programs and Alcoholics Anonymous that have always really bothered me, even before I stopped drinking. Words like teetotaler or being on the wagon or falling off the wagon just makes me feel like, you know, this is a disease that is very prevalent today. Why are we referring to the or the 1890s when we're using descriptive phrases. I'm not sure there's a lot of wagons. When I go out on Colorado Boulevard, I don't see a lot of wagons anymore. So I don't know why that's the predominant phrase. Are there any recovery world phrases that bother you? Um, I guess maybe um, gaslighting. Because oh, yeah. <laughs> there isn't a past tense good word for it. Like we've thrown around gaslit, but I don't think it makes any sense when you're new to the recovery world. I don't think that you understand what it means, and it bothers me that that it doesn't make it just doesn't make any sense to to have that word describe what's happening. Yeah, it's just being lied to. Just feels like two the, random words that were grabbing. Yeah, I mean, I know there are lamp lighters from, you know, when they had oil street lamps, you know, if you watch Mary Poppins. Yeah. The new one. They pulled, pulled, around, they pulled around their wagon full of oil, full of lamp oil and drunks and, and yeah. the ladder that they needed and then lit their lamps. Yeah, I think that word and, and detachment is hard because I think we just have a thought that detachment doesn't do anything but show you don't love someone like you're just you know there's the detaching with love which you learn like if you're in a recovery program that 12-step program but those I think are two words that never really I never really understood and then after I learned about gaslighting I was like well that's just a dumb word for it you're just really being lied to and manipulated it is a dumb word for it I think you're right um and it is an old tiny word but that's what I want to talk to you about today. Gaslighting. I guess, I don't know why teetotaler and falling off the wagon bothers me so much, but gaslighting really doesn't. Although you're right about the past tense part. Is it gaslit? Is it gaslighted? Ugh, it's hard. And luckily, we are, I think, in the past tense when it comes to the gaslighting in a relationship. You can agree with that if you want. Yes. Yeah, yes. good, good. No more lies and manipulation. That's yeah. what it should just be. So because yeah. these terms are so, you know, not hard to define, but they don't explain themselves automatically because the words are kind of obscure. Let's start there. Lies and manipulation is what gaslighting means. I, I like to think of it as, and, and we've talked about this lots with our, our friends in our Echoes of Recovery group, it's when... The loved one of the alcoholic is being told that the things that they can see with their own eyes are not really the truth. So, you, you know, it, it makes you feel, well, well, I'll ask you, Sherry, how does it make you feel to be 
told that the things that you can see with your own eyes aren't really the truth and, and be told that in a very convincing and repetitive and consistent manner? Well, I think, I think for me, I never felt like I was, oh gosh, I hate this, being gaslit because I just thought, oh, you're just a liar and manipulating. And so I didn't really believe it. And I never like, I don't remember times where I really like questioned my own suspicions and instincts like that. I did feel like you were trying to manipulate me. I did feel like you were trying to lie to me. And I felt really, you know, hurt and upset and bothered by those actions because I thought, gosh, you know, you were supposed to love me. And I feel like, you know, when you think about the things that were being said, it would be hard to think that you could be so bold-faced lying to someone and then turn around and say, you know, you're so smart, um... But on the other hand, when you drink, when the drinker is drinking, you know, they're like, um, holding your credibility and your intellect in their hands and acting like, oh, well, I can just play around with that. So you definitely feel like you're getting toyed with emotionally. And I can understand how a lot of people would feel like they're crazy, especially if, you know, it's something that's gone on for years and years. And I will I will say this. I will defend you. I don't feel like... I feel like we've heard stories of people who have had it so much worse. You know, that manipulation and toying and gaslighting or gaslighted by their drinker. I don't feel like it, I it had that... Made, it never made you feel crazy? I don't... I feel like I was crazy staying in this situation. Right. But I don't feel like I was crazy. You never questioned your own instincts to the point where, um, you know, you just bought into the thing that I was selling, basically. Yeah, I mean, I think your number one well, for you. lie was that, oh, everybody drinks like this, you know? And I was like, no, they don't. Well, let's talk about that. Let's, let's go from the abstract to the concrete. Let's use a few examples of the ways that I gaslit or gaslighted, <laughs> depending on your grammar choice you um so that yeah that was a big one i i grew up in a household where my father drank every single night yeah uh, he didn't get out of control the way i did but he drank every night and so i thought coming home from work and pouring a cocktail was not, was my birthright i mean it was it was all american it was what men do. I mean, there was never an inkling of a question in my mind about whether or not that was okay. Mm -hmm. And you right off, you know, even early on, didn't agree. Yeah. I mean, I didn't grow up in a household where that was tradition. And I guess maybe I always bulked at the idea of that um, concept of when a man got home from work, they got to sat down and read the paper and relax a little bit and um, have a cocktail and I was like, I grew up with a single mom and she didn't drink like that. And she got home and she had more work to do because she had, you know, the household, to take, the household to take care of and kids to take care of. So I guess I kind of balked at that idea at the beginning, but I thought also, gosh, even 
like I had a stepdad in high school. He didn't come home and drink like that. So I didn't grow up in that. So I thought, no, that's not how it is. Not everybody comes home and has a, a drink after work. So it started, I mean, I think kind of innocently like that. We just had different perspectives. Mm-hmm. And early on when my drinking was less, I mean, my drinking was causing problems from the beginning, but it was less often causing problems and it was more manageable at the at the beginning. It was just a difference in perspectives, a difference in opinions. Right. But eventually it got to the point where we would have bad nights. I would overdo it. We would get in fights. It was causing tension. All of the things associated with high-functioning alcoholism. And you were starting to say, hey, this is, this is not okay. This isn't the way I want to live my life. You appear to have a problem, Matt. And I would go to that same defense. Guys just drink more than women. Mm-hmm. Um, that you know, all my friends drink, and all my friends drink like this, and this is fine. And you know, at that point, how was that making you feel when you were saying this is not fine, and I was saying this is fine? You're just not in tune with society and culture, Sherry. What's the matter with you? I mean, what what was that like? Well, I thought, gosh, he's just a selfish asshole who just wants his own. Who wants to keep drinking that way? Because I could see changes in our friends. I mean, especially when a lot of them became parents. I could see changes. Um, One of your friends joked one time, you know, this is a college friend. But a lot of the times when you got around your friends, let me just go back, you would binge drink because it would be a special weekend. And they would too. And they would too. And they would partake. But I, I knew that at home on their regular, you know, Tuesday after work, They weren't drinking, you know, and then social media started to play into our lives where you would, you know, see people, your friends that lived close in the same area gathered at bars or whatever. Um, So you would try to make it seem like they still all drink. But I'm like, that's a special occasion. They're out for a certain reason or, Mm. you know, to watch a game. And one of your college friends jokingly said um, that his wife has got him to drink chamomile tea when he would come home from work and he's a big dude and so it was just hysterical thinking of him sitting around drinking chamomile tea and being a tea drinker so I was like I know Uh, that tea totally yeah absolutely but I was like so I know that your friends were changing and also we had you know family vacations that we spent you know a week with your sister and her husband and family and I knew that her husband didn't drink like that and well, sometimes he did. Sometimes he did. When he tried to hang out with you a couple times and mm. it ended poorly. Um, so was that was that validation for you that the way you were looking at the world was right and the way I was looking at the world was wrong? If, yeah, I just If my felt- brother-in-law, you know, drank at my pace and, and there were repercussions from that, was that like, see, Matt, I told you? Yeah. And I, I just kept like feeling like I was getting more and more validation that no people don't drink like you they don't have that tolerance or that capacity they don't have that ability not to get a hangover because at that point you didn't really get hangovers and and the compulsiveness not to yeah and the just that need so I, I felt like all it did was give more validation to me and it's not because I am you know thinking oh I'm so smart because I certainly didn't feel very smart um, 
Because I would think if I was so smart, why am I still here? Uh, so I just feel like it just, it just made me start to get disgusted by you a lot earlier and lose, like, the likability of you. I didn't like being around you. I don't know exactly where the self-confidence for you came from, but it served, it served you very well. You know, we, we always talk about how our adult attributes come from, from our childhoods and maybe just a ton of credit goes to your mom for the way she raised you or the environment you were raised in. I don't know. But the fact that because so many people that we talk to and we work with, the kind of gaslighting that we're talking about me telling you everybody drinks like this you know you're you're crazy this is fine there's nothing wrong with this that's the kind of thing that often makes the loved one makes the spouse really doubt herself and the fact that you stayed strong in your confidence that what you knew to be true was true and rather than get down on yourself you got down on me and got disgusted with me that's a huge at you know Tons of credit goes to you for that. Well, maybe it's just because I I feel like I kept... Like in high school, I wouldn't say I was, you know, Miss Innocent, but I wouldn't say I was the worst, you know, partying group. But I did see people that I went to high school with that, you know, that were heavy drinkers or heavy drug users, like, turn their life around and, and not abuse alcohol. And it's not just through social media, but, you know, um, conversations with people. Um, or that conversations that we would have with either my sister or my mom who still live in the same town I grew up in. So, you know, so I guess just like through the grapevine, I would hear about, oh, someone who was totally a big partier in high school or college or our college friends and how they changed and, and morphed and moved on to not be so adamant about everything had to have alcohol. And I always think that when we lived in Chicago, especially, you loved having people come and stay with us. So then you would have reasons to have, you know, to over drink. So it is kind of amazing with on the few social gathering kind of things that we still do with people from our college days, how much once I stopped drinking, how much the overall alcohol consumption of the group went down. And at first I thought it was friends of ours that were being compassionate towards me and realizing, oh, Matt's trying to be sober, so let's not drink so much around him. And now, in honesty, I don't think that has anything to do with it. I think when I'm not there revving everyone up, there's just they just don't want to drink as much as right. I wanted to drink. So I think that the the things that you were noticing that I was oblivious to are very valid. One thing, I, I want to defend myself for a second and I want to defend other drinkers out there and I but I don't want to do this because I'm trying to you know save my pristine reputation or something like that because it has nothing to you know we're pretty honest um, my drinking reputation is abysmal so I'm not trying to defend myself for the for the normal reasons that one tries to defend himself. So I want to do explain. this. I want yeah, I want to I want to give a perspective because I think it's important for the loved ones of the drinkers to hear this. 
when I was gaslighting you, when I was telling you, Sherry, this is normal. What you're seeing isn't really true. Your impression that I'm overdoing it or that I'm wreaking havoc in our life or that, you know, my daily drinking or my weekend binging is a problem. Your impression that that is the case. That's not true, Sherry. You're not, you're, you're the crazy one. When I was saying things like that, I wasn't doing it to be mean. I, I was doing it because I believed it. And I think that's really important for people to understand. I, I didn't sit around and concoct evil plans. I, I wasn't conspiring against you. I loved you. I loved you with all of my heart. And I, I wanted you to believe what I believed. And I think there's a subconscious element to this. One of the reasons why I defended my drinking behaviors you know, in the way that I did and, and really did consider it to be normal and okay and really did want to convince you that it was normal and okay was because the only alternative to that is acknowledging that I had a drinking problem and the only solution to acknowledging I had a drinking problem was to stop drinking. And I was not even close to being ready for that. That I couldn't begin to wrap my mind around sobriety. And so anything that would lead me in the direction of sobriety had to be rejected. But like I said, I think a lot of this happened on a subconscious level because on the conscious level, I just thought I was normal and I thought you were crazy. And so when I would call you crazy and tell you that this is fine, what, what's wrong with you? That's really what I believed, okay. as pathetic as that sounds. And so I think for our listeners, if they've got drinking loved ones in their lives who are constantly trying to say, what you're seeing isn't real. I'm not over drinking. I'm not talking about the flat out lies where someone says to you, oh, I haven't been drinking and they have been mm -hmm. like that. That I don't understand. That's just a flat out lie. I never thought I could get away with that with you. I never did that. I definitely lied about how much I drank, but I never mm -hmm. said I hadn't been drinking when I had been drinking. That just seems um, an unwinnable situation to me. Because, yeah, you know and I know that the loved ones always know when the person's been drinking. Yeah, but even before we started doing this work, and even when I was just a, a disgusting drinker, I still never thought I could get away with you not knowing that I had had anything to drink. Yeah. I mean, okay, maybe there were, was a time or two where I had one beer and I pulled that off. Mm -hmm. Maybe. I can't even remember, honestly. Well, but you also but, had the perspective of, like, you know, you were, you you felt like there was nothing wrong with the drinking. Well, that's, th these two things tie in together. Yeah. I didn't lie about whether or not I was drinking. I tried to convince you that my drinking was fine. Mm -hmm. And and so, just to drive that point home, I did so because I really believed it was fine, not because I was trying to be an evil genius and make you feel crazy. And so, my guess is that m in most of these situations... If a person is being gaslit, the person who's doing the gaslighting really believes in their heart that what they're doing, there's nothing wrong with it. Yeah, and I will I will say that I feel like this situation is probably something that is relatable. Like, <clears throat> if there would be a family gathering and they were having, you know, at your parents' house especially, because this is where it happened, there was happy hour and you would have a couple of cocktails, you would have... You know, you and and the other men mostly would have gin and tonic because gin is disgusting and gross. So us women know better. Now, I know there are women that drink gin. But, 
you know, either vodka or gin and tonics. Well, if your dad made one, I'm sure it was not nearly as strong as yours. 100%. Because over time, you just kept upping your game. So, yeah, you would have two cocktails, but your two cocktails were not equivalent to his. But you made it try to seem like that because you only saw the two glasses made, you know. So I I guess that's another reason why I was like, yeah, but I know how much you put in yours. Yeah, that's... So I know that you're having two cocktails, but it's not the same as your dad having two cocktails. That's, you know? that's the kind of bold-faced lying that I did. Uh, amount, not, yeah. not yes or no, but amount. Yeah. Oh, yeah. There was barely any, just enough tonic to make little bubbles. Bubbles. For, for any outside observer who looked into my cup to see was uh-huh. the only reason there was any tonic in there at all. Yeah. Yeah, you're 100% right. And I feel like then that was just you also lying to yourself. Well, it wasn't. It was overconfidence. It was, you know, I'm younger and I I do have this tolerance. And so, I you know, I need this heavy drink that's mostly gin and I deserve this heavy drink that's mostly gin. And I'm I'm not as much of a lightweight as the people around me. It was just flat out arrogance. And, and when I say the word need, there is also a very, very common in alcoholism. There's this fear of running out. And when you're in a social setting where everyone's drinking, you're trying to drink the amount that you feel like you need without making it obvious that you're drinking more than other people. So a great way to do that is to make your own cocktails and make them five times stronger than anybody else's so that I don't, you know, if, if the option is drink a really, really strong gin and tonic or drink five gin and tonics to every one of the rest of the people, you're always going to choose drink the really, really strong one because then nobody else in the room realizes what you're doing. You've got a really disgusted look on your face. Like... Tears in my eyes for how sad it is and just the disgusting because I can't stand gin. Yeah, you could you, tell. you did go from tears, I could tell. Yeah. Well, I remember when, like, you would make me a drink, I'd be like, no, no. Anybody but Matt can make my drink. Yeah, yeah. anybody under the sun because even if I said, make it really weak, it would still be so strong. And so I knew. So that was another evidence to me, like, you think that is weak. It is so strong. You know, like, you're just, you're taste buds and you're skewed yeah. you know 100 percent. you know another of the things that i would say especially toward you know toward the end of my drinking i would say sherry you're the one with the drinking problem i'm not the one with the drinking problem and what i meant by that was that was pure gaslighting and what i meant by that was if we looked at your your past and your history your father was an alcoholic and that did you know, you, that can't help but create trauma for you as a child that carries into your adulthood. And your mother was pretty anti-alcohol and would say things openly that were pretty anti-alcohol. I mean, in the in the almost 30 years now that I've known your mother, I've seen her drink a couple of wine coolers. I, I don't know, maybe she had a Glass of champagne at our wedding. wedding. Yeah. Oh my gosh, that was not bland. People. I've probably seen her drink six drinks in 30 years, right? So mm-hmm. she was pretty, she, I mean, she's pretty openly anti-alcohol because of the trauma it caused for her life. And Well, and she didn't grow up with that. Like, yeah. no, I mean, you know, her siblings dabbled in it, but nobody on either side of her parents' family had any alcohol. So I would look at 
that use. kind of background that you had, and then here you com- complaining to me and telling me I'm disgusting and telling me I had a problem, and I would throw that back in your face and say, no, you're the one with the problem. You're the one with the drinking problem because you don't accept what's going on all around you, in not not in our house, but in society and in, in the culture at large. There, you know, everybody drinks, Sherry, and you're the one with the drinking problem. How did that make you feel? Well, definitely in the beginning, I felt really pissy about it. I would... I would say, think like, why are you throwing my past up in my face? Um, I also felt like, you know, it's not like I didn't drink. And I just didn't drink to the way that you wanted to be okay drinking. So I thought, you know, that it was just absurd that you would throw it up in my face and that you would tell me when I have a drinking problem because I just didn't want to sit down in the family room downstairs on a Saturday night after the kids were in bed and drink with you and watch a movie, you know, because um, it, it affected me so completely different. So, and then after a while I started thinking, yeah, I feel like I do have a drinking problem and I think the world has a drinking problem and we're just at different ends of the spectrum. Now I'm proud to say I do feel like I have a drinking problem. Yes, everybody drinks and society makes it okay and it's it's wrong. So now mm-hmm. I feel like I kind of own it the way you've owned the title alcoholic, you know. What do you mean you have a drinking problem? Like I drink, have a have... problem with the way the world drinks okay, and okay. the way the world views it. So I've kind of, I think it's so, funny so now. So what I we... was blaming, what I was accusing you of back then, you own that now. Yeah, because yes. I really do, because okay. it is, it is. You are a non-drinker and proud of it, and yeah. you think that the overconsumption is disgusting and, I mean, even and problematic. Just a, and, and even just a couple of years ago, I would have had a drink or two out with friends on a f- rare occasion, but I often, you know, didn't when we were out, because someone had to be the driver and be aware of what's going on, and I also got, you know... Um, terrible hangover so I didn't enjoy it the way you did but um yeah I thought it was I just thought it was so devious and hurtful the way you would throw up my past in my face but now I'm really glad that even though I went through a long period not all, you know of drinking in my teens and college that I did have that upbringing of yeah I do have a problem with drinking you know, when you talked about how it made you feel when I would say that you're the one with the drinking problem, you used words like you'd be disgusted and I can't remember all the words, upset, um, defiant about, you know, that you were right and that what I was trying to convince you of was wrong. And I think, I don't think that makes you a unicorn. I don't think you're you know, the only one that feels that way. But I think it's somewhat unique because I think a lot of people, again, back to this term gaslighting, I think a lot of people do waver and question their own belief system and wonder, gosh, is this person standing right here in front of me that I'm in love with, that that I'm bonded to, are they right? Am I the one that's crazy because I think he's drinking too much? And the fact that it never made you feel crazy is, it's, it's interesting. It's um, its something you should be proud of. The fact that you were always able to 
be defiant and just know what you knew. I mean, it didn't serve me well. Well, sure. To like argue with you about it. Oh, yeah. But it just. I mean, I think that maybe if I did argue, I did argue, but to you know, but not on a daily basis or every single time. But I don't know how much it helped the marriage in a way. Like, I mean, I I think it just, like I said, it just made me feel crazy for staying in this situation knowing that I felt like I could trust a lot of my instincts about that. And I was, you know, like another one that I feel like there was a big discrepancy between you and I was you seemed to think that it didn't really affect the kids and they didn't know what was going on, but... It was very clear to me because I had sober, fresh eyes and I was their mom walking around in pain. And they can see that. So that's one that, that's what I think I did fight for more. You know, was then within myself and then I would just, you know, um, try to pretend like nothing was the matter the next day and because I felt like I didn't want to add any more trauma to them by talking about it because I knew that I had talked to them about it some and it did create a lot of trauma so um, I feel like after a while that's the only one that I really tried to argue with of you of saying to you there's a lot more going on in this house than just the drinking there's a lot more problems that's been created by the alcohol than just your drinking. That mama bear instinct, that's something that we hear quite often from people that they aren't necessarily able to defend themselves. They do question their own sanity. But once it the kids once it, the kids come into the picture and they you know, the health of their kids are what's in question, then you know, it's like they shift into a different gear and um, the gaslighting is far less effective because they they are protecting their children. It's not a matter of whether or not the spouse of the drinker is is crazy or or viewing things through the wrong lens. As soon as it starts to impact the kids, then the, that spouse of the alcoholic becomes incredibly strong and defiant and stands up for what they believe. I think that's, that's been a fact, you know, just from a a observational perspective, that's been a fascinating part of, of what we've learned from other people is that that's pretty universal among the mama bears out there. It's very interesting. The, the other thing I want to, hit on before we move away from the 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 time when I was actively drinking and actively gaslighting you it the last thing I want to hit on here is the the vile disgusting despicable nature of the words that we could use when the fighting would get ugly and I don't know if this really fits into a conversation about gaslighting or not, but but it I, it's very pertinent to a conversation about an alcoholic marriage. 
when we would start to argue, I mean, the things that would come out of my mouth that I, that now in my fifth year of sobriety, I couldn't even dream of ever saying to you. Um, I think that's another really just awful component of what alcohol does to us. Um, it allows us to say the worst, mean, hateful things. And the reason I'm bringing this up in a conversation with gaslighting is, you know, I would get to a point where I wasn't just gaslighting you to defend myself. I was trying to hurt you because I was hurt. I was hurting. And I would say awful, 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 nasty names, nasty things to you. And I was trying to hurt you with my words at that point. Yeah. And I, and just reminder that alcohol changes the person that's not drinking. So, and I think that I alluded to this in the conversation about gaslighting is that I was still believing my instincts and I felt like I was right in what I was seeing and it made me start to really, you know, despise you and and become disinterested in you. So then it made it very easy for me to spew back some pretty nasty insults and comments and, and hurtful things to say because I was trying to hurt you with my words and my actions because I was hurting too. So it definitely goes both ways. Well, and that's so important when we talk with people about how alcohol changes both people, the drinker and the non-drinker. It it really does. It puts you in these situations that you shouldn't have to experience, traumatic situations that you shouldn't have to experience, and the reactions are going to be unnatural things. So me saying those awful words to you, that's not any part of my you know, normal makeup, no matter how mad I get at you and you saying those things back to me. I mean, you're, you're pinned in a corner and you're going to get your claws out and fight your way out. And, and, you know, we still get in arguments, but, but none of that, I mean, it doesn't even come within a hundred miles of the way we used to talk to each other ever anymore. And I'm so thankful for that. And I, I don't, when we are arguing, I'm not trying to hurt you anymore. I, I can't remember the last time that I got mad at you and was trying to hurt you. You know, I, do I get hurt, disappointed? Yeah, I mean, but it, it just feels... And, and we've done recent podcast episodes about how easy it is to go into that relationship relapse and go down in the pit, the really, really bad place. And that does, I guess, occasionally still happen. But it's you know, further in between those episodes and the kind of disagreements that we have now feel so much more normal. Don't they, I don't want to put words in your mouth, but doesn't it, when we disagree about something, doesn't it just feel kind of normal? Like you're going to say your piece and I'm going to listen and I'm going to say my piece and you're going to listen and hopefully we can move on relatively quickly. Well, I'd like to say it feels normal, but I don't really know what normal is Hmm. for that. So... I suppose it seems like it's not as explosive, and it seems like it's more controlled, contained. Yes, it still hurts or stings. Um, We don't, you know, it doesn't disrupt the whole function of the next day. A lot of times when there is a, a normal, I guess, argument. So I hope that's what it feels like. I don't want to 
I just, I don't know what that is because I didn't have that example shown to me when I was growing up. And because my father would come, you know, and be disruptive at our house when he was drinking and it would get very explosive. Um, and, uh, I think that I just didn't have that good example. So I'm, I'm assuming that that's what it's like. I'm not trying to, you know, make it hard for you, but I I feel like it feels like it's more normal, but I don't. Well, there's a definitely a difference between a normal disagreement and like what happened on seven fourteen twenty one that we recorded episode 99 about that was full on back in the pit, but we're able to normally have disagreements. I respect the fact that you don't know what normal is because we haven't ever really lived in normal. Um, but we certainly rebound faster on a when regular I, basis I, than we did like in July like that. Yeah. And, and but one thing we'll definitely both agree on is that those vile words don't come out anymore. Yeah, even that that night during that terrible fight, I don't. We weren't calling each yeah. other terrible names or anything like that, or saying horrible, horrible. Yeah. Stuff. It was just the feeling, and and so. So that kind of using those words, that's that's gaslighting in overdrive. It's coming from a place of pain. It is not the kind of gaslighting that I defended earlier saying, well, I really believe these things. So that's why I'm saying them to you. When I, when I spoke in that way to you, I didn't, I didn't believe that I was trying to hurt you because I was hurting and there's no excuse for it. It's awful. One of the other awful things that I said to you when, when we would fight and when I would gaslight you, this only happened a, a small handful of times. But it did happen, and I think this is also something that went both ways, maybe once or twice. But um, we would we would get to the point where we would talk about divorce, and just to make the other person hurt even more, we would start talking about when we were going to tell the kids that we were going to get a divorce. So to own my part of that, I will say specifically, I would say, well, if we're going to get a divorce, I'm going to go tell the kids right now, or I'm going to go tell the kids in the morning. That we're getting a divorce. They've they got to start getting ready. They gotta they gotta be prepared for what's coming. And that was a really, really, especially like like we talked about a minute ago with with your strong mama bear instincts. That was a really, really hurtful thing to say. And I knew it was hurtful because you knew that it would crush the kids, and you would do anything to keep the kids from being crushed. So what's your recollection of situations like that when on again I don't think it got to that more than just a few times but on the few times when it did get to let's get divorced and let's go tell the kids right now how did that make you feel well I think you just described it like I mean because I know that divorce is a long process and I know you don't tell the children immediately as soon as you make this decision while you're in the throes of an argument. So I knew that it was you, I I feel like I'm going to use this word again, I feel like it was you manipulating me into recoiling and apologizing and retracting all the things that I said to you because you knew that I wouldn't want you to go and tell them. Because if you were going to get a divorce, you certainly wouldn't go tell them immediately. So I knew that it was a tactic that you would use 
to hurt me even more. And when I spoke about divorce, I wouldn't have told the children immediately. Um, because I guess because I am a child of divorce. So I know that it's not something you just run and blab off to the kids. So it would frighten me and it would scare me and it would make me hate you. And I would then retract everything because I didn't want to see them be in pain. So. Yeah. It's it's a pretty despicable thing for me to have said and to threaten. And I think it's important that we brought it up because we just know for a fact that 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 wasn't a Matt and Sherry problem. That happens a lot. The divorce gets thrown around and then telling the kids of the divorce gets thrown around a lot in these just pain-fueled, alcohol-fueled, awful, awful arguments and conversations. And it's not okay. It's the most despicable kind of gaslighting there is, I suppose. Let's talk a little bit about the impact that all of this years of gaslighting has on trust. I mean, when it comes to relationship recovery, trust is the ultimate goal. Rebuilding trust, you've got to work through the resentments, you've got to deal with the kids, um, you've got to acknowledge that the truth of what happened is really what happened. There's all this work that goes into this relationship recovery, but ultimately rebuilding trust is, that's the ultimate goal because um, that's the hardest and that's the last thing to come back. And all of this gaslighting has a tremendous negative impact on trust. I mean, how, if I'm telling you that you're the one with the drinking problem and what you're seeing isn't really true and you're crazy, that can ha- you know, can only erode trust. There's no other way around it. So when we talk about the road back, when we talk about recovery and discovery and and getting the relationship back on, on track, owning that the truth is the truth, which I just alluded to, is one of the major components for trust building. It's more important than the apology. Sherry, we got to the point where me saying I'm sorry for having drank too much and behaved poorly, that didn't land for you anymore. You didn't you didn't care about the sorry, did you? No. No. Kind of felt like if you were really sorry for the behavior or the antics or the situation that there would be a change. And I know that you were always trying to come up with new plans, but we had already kind of cycled through all of the plans of changing your drinking habits and it landed on one thing and so I didn't want to hear the sorry anymore unless there was the sobriety of you know was the outcome so making amends just going through things for me to apologize for even in sobriety I mean I think if I recall correctly not only did it not mean anything to you it was even kind of frustrating and aggravating because 
saris started to be irritating, right? They they were empty and hollow, and all they did was it was like sandpaper. Yeah, and I think because of of our earlier situations with arguing, you would apologize for something, and then it was to after the apology happened in your mind, it was to never be brought up again. You apologize. Yeah. I accepted your apology. We move forward. We don't look back. We don't talk about the hurt. We just, you know, go forward. So so I already hated apologies because I felt like I was just, you know, expected to say, yes, I accept your apology it, and never converse well, about it. So the I'm, apology itself becomes a form of gaslighting, right? It mm -hmm. becomes a form of... I'm going to tell you I'm sorry for this and I'll try not to do it again. But really, we both knew I was going to do it again mm -hmm. and I was going to drink and this was going to happen again. And so it's just another form of manipulation. Mm -hmm. Yeah. So more valuable to us in our relationship recovery work was for me to sit quietly and listen as you explained the things that had happened and the truth about the things that had happened. And rather than just say, I'm sorry, I'm sorry, I already said I'm sorry, let's not talk about this anymore. To just sit and listen and acknowledge that your truth was the truth. This is, for me, the opposite of gaslighting. That's why this is so important. For, for Rather than me to deny and argue with what you were saying and try to make you feel crazy, to validate you and validate your experiences mm -hmm. and say, yep, I don't, in many cases, I had to say, I don't remember I don't yeah. remember because I was too drunk and I was blackout drunk, but do I believe you? Yes. Yeah, and also it was my perspective, my sober perspective versus maybe you weren't blackout drunk or you don't remember, but you're, you know, everybody has their own story. Yeah. There are so many perspectives in a story that you had to understand, you know, where I was coming from and you had to sit and listen and I didn't expect an apology for that. Like we call that, you know, our... Um, I was going to say regrets, but that's not the word. Um, working on our resentments? Resentments. Yeah, yeah. Anyway, yeah. So I didn't, during that process, I didn't need an apology. I just needed you to be a silent listener and understand how it made me feel and the situation and, and my perspective and be okay with me having input on the situation. So my acknowledging that your truth was the truth, that is a part of the road back toward trust. But it isn't enough in and of itself. Just just me going through all these past resentments and saying, yep, what you say happened, that I believe you, that's what really happened. Um, that didn't in and of itself rebuild the trust, but it was it was an important part of it. Another thing that we had to do to rebuild trust was to replace bad with good. You know... Pretty much every component of alcoholism recovery, whether it's for the drinker, for the loved one, or for the relationship, a ton of patience is required. And I feel like a broken record. I feel like I'm saying all the time that it's going to take time and you've got to wait for it. You've got to wait it out and you've got to have patience. And it, it feels like a cop-out, honestly, when I say it. Like there's got to be a shortcut. There's got to be a faster way to do it. But there isn't. Not that I've been made aware of. And not just with the, our personal experience and the experience of the people that we know, but through reading and listening and, and just trying to be as involved in this area as possible, I don't know of a shortcut. You just have to wait it out and 
And waiting isn't just sitting in a corner. Waiting is replacing bad memories with good. That's trust building. Let's talk about some examples of that. You know, one of them is something that you you brought up uh, just a bit ago. I used to not believe that the impact on the kids was very much. I used to think, well, we mostly shielded the kids. And you were like, no, we didn't. Uh, this is bad. And I have come around to totally agree and agree with you and believe what you've said. And part of it, honestly, is because of lived experience. I've seen different ways that our kids have struggled and been able to draw a direct line to, oh, that's the behavior of a child of an alcoholic, mm-hmm. like scientifically researched behavior of the child of an alcoholic and gone, oh, crap. I guess we didn't hide it as well as we thought we did. But that is still a way for me to validate what you believed and what you have said all along that, oh, no, we we have messed the kids up with your drinking, Matt. And so what does that feel like to have me on your side on that now to acknowledge that that uh, that you're right? Um, well, it is nice to have you on my side. It doesn't make me feel any better about this situation. It makes me think about what I could have done to silence my anger. Um, what I could have done to been more boundary setting or detaching early on to prevent some of the chaos and the pain that I carried around in front of them. Um, it does make it a lot easier to, to talk with you and then to have you on my side and then we can talk to the kids about things that are going on and things that are typical traits or things that they struggle with. So I think that that's very helpful. I just took a three- I still I'm sorry, I still beat myself up though about what I could have done to make it less chaotic. Yeah, I understand. And I'm sorry. I'm sorry it took me so long to come around. But I just spent a three-day weekend with our daughter dropping her off for her sophomore year in college. And when, when I got home, you and I discussed what that would have been like had I still been a drinker. Yeah. Because, you know, I'm, there, would, there would have been... There were many moments that our daughter and I really enjoyed together that if I had still been a drinker, I would have rushed through... <laughs> Just the drive in and of itself. We had, we had some fun stuff. We had some fun stops on the drive, the 13-hour drive to Minnesota. And if I had still been drinking, I wouldn't have had any interest in those fun stops. I would have been in a hurry to get there so I could start drinking. Mm-hmm. And, you know, the last night I was there before leaving in the morning, we ran into some difficulties with her unpacking. And we had to do some things that, had I still been drinking, I would have been six beers in and wouldn't have been interested in doing, you know, what we needed to do, running the errands we needed to do and getting the problem solved. So I I just, I wonder what it's, I mean, I know what it's like for me. It feels great. feels great to be there present, you know, for my daughter that way now, um, in a way that I wasn't able to in the past, but for you as my spouse, how does that feel like when I drive off 
with a car loaded down. Um, here we are headed north and, and east to Minnesota. Do you, does it, is it just a more peaceful feeling for you knowing that I don't drink anymore, that, that I'm going to take care of her and that it's going to be okay? Well, I guess that the fact that you're not drinking anymore, um, has me feel like I'm, you know, there's that safety net there. I still sometimes, and maybe just because this is, this part of it is all kind of, you know, two years old maybe, um, with recognizing the impact of the kids and wanting us to, and we feel like, we feel like as parents, we want to try to get them fixed right now. We want them pushed into getting oh, so fixed. So you were worried that so I was, I was going to try to talk to her the whole yes, time. Yes, because right now she's just trying to figure out things. So I, and she does not feel like she wants to talk a lot. Yeah. So I was worried in that regard. Okay. Um, I was wondering why you're hesitating, because but that makes I, sense. Because I felt like I just wanted it to be a good experience. Yeah. I didn't want it to be heavy because it was already emotionally heavy. You know, her moving back out of the state to go to school. Yeah. And I know that she was stressed. And when she gets stressed, she has, you know, she gets a little snappy. Um, so I was kind of hesitant about that. And I just wanted it to be fairly lighthearted yeah. and fun. And it sounds like you were exact. It sounds like that's how it was, that there was some fun events, that there was some problem solving. There was the, oh, let's go to... A store, um, you know, at seven thirty or eight o'clock at on a rainy night on a Saturday to get you some shelving units and that sort of stuff, and that you were just kind of making sure things got done, but not pushing and rushing, and and you did the dad stuff, you know, making sure that the garage door locked at the house they're renting, and so I was very very relieved to hear that it was not intense conversations on the ride. Yeah, so it was neither of the things that you might have feared. It wasn't me rushing to get there so we could drink, and it also wasn't me, you know, both of our older kids call us the therapists and that we always want to psychoanalyze and try to try to fix them. Well, but we want to do and that. so you were worried that I would do that, and yeah. honestly, I was worried that I would do that too. And Did you have to put duct tape over your mouth no, or just, just... Listen, to, listen to music the whole I just... Time? couldn't come up with a way that that would go well like when I would think it through like you said it's already an emotionally charged weekend I'm dropping my only daughter off at college it's going to be hard and I couldn't come up with a way in my head that those kinds of heavy conversations would go smoothly so I just avoided them yeah and we do that like because we love our kids and we want them to go off into adult, uh, early adulthood as prepared as possible and we're I feel like we have this little sort of like oh we need to get them working on these experiences because we don't want them that that to hinder their early adulthood and they need to resolve this and this will make them feel better and blah 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 but as a lot of our listeners know therapy is really hard to get a grasp on and a financial grasp on right now so it's we feel like we have to then be the in-between therapist yeah Sorry, i felt the need to explain that the in-between therapist the in -between. also known as the parents 
Yeah. I don't think there's anything wrong with us having those no. heavy conversations. We just got to pick no. and choose our yeah. times, and hopefully it's a time when when the kids are ready for it. Yeah. Or Yeah, that's what I was just worried, because that, that there would be you know, 13 hours in the car, and Nebraska doesn't really have a whole lot of radio stations. <laughs> And they would be like, oh, this is a perfect time to talk when she's already high anxiety. Yeah. Moving into this new place. Well, but so the whole point of, of this, the work on the road back, the relationship recovery work is that you've got to be patient and we've got to replace the bad memories with good. And although you were nervous about how this one would go and for good reason, um, this definitely was a good memory. Not just a good memory for me, but I think as we recounted for you how it went I think it brought relief to you right yes. and you realized okay this was a good experience um, yeah and and that's what trust building is just taking good experiences and laying them over the bad experiences and doing it over and over and over again for as long as it takes so the last thing I want to hit on is how much this experience has changed us how much living through alcoholism has changed us when when I see somebody or hear of experiences where someone has has been gaslighting somebody else, I don't think of that person as evil. I think, oh my gosh, um, that's another person who's a victim of alcohol. Uh, a, you know, a lot of times I think people who haven't experienced this kind of stuff firsthand think to the drinker, you know, why don't you stop behaving that way? Why don't you stop drinking? What the hell's the matter with you? But I have a ton of compassion for both the drinker and the loved one now and realize, oh, if you're being manipulated by a drinker, they're not doing that because they're evil. They're doing that because they're in the grips of alcoholism and the alcohol has changed the way their brain functions and the gaslighting is just their defense mechanism. And so I, you know, I wonder, I say that person to myself, I think that person's not evil. I wonder how much pain they're in. You as the loved one, are you able to get there? Or is there too much anger involved for you? How, how do you respond when you hear of a situation where someone's being gaslighted or manipulated? I think for me, I, I hope that the person who is being manipulated and lied to really holds true to their instincts and believes themselves yeah. and doesn't let that affect them and their self-esteem. That's my number one priority is like, you know, you're right. Yeah. You know, you're right. You're not the crazy person. Yeah. Um, I would say I still have anger and get mad when I hear stories about that because of just the damage that alcohol is doing to the relationship. And I do have some sympathy, probably not as much as you, because I am on the other side of the coin that I don't, um, you know, I have some sympathy, but for the drinker that they're at that point where they have to do that because I think they're not doing it intentionally. They're doing it to keep, their addiction and their cravings or in their or their abuse to alcohol going and but in my mind I still have that background of their being selfish mm -hmm. and manipulative 
But I know it's not with intent and maliciousness. It's just the grips of alcohol. Well, it's totally understandable that you have a slightly different perspective because you experienced it from a different perspective. But this this blending of the perspectives and coming to a common understanding of the disease and the impacts, that is this is all about what we try to do in our marriage evolution program. We try to get both sides of the street to better understand the other side of the street. And when it's just if it's just you and me, if this if this whole saga had just been me and you talking, Sherry, me trying to tell you how I feel and you trying to tell me how you feel, we would not have made near the progress that we've made since we've involved other people in in our discovery and we've learned from other people. And I've learned that, oh, you know, the reactions that Sherry is having, that's not unique to Sherry. All people on that side of the street have those reactions and hopefully you've learned some of the same that mm-hmm. my behavior wasn't unique to me. It was unique to everybody who suffers from alcoholism. Not everybody, but almost, you know, lots of people. So there are no, no snowflakes involved here. There's a lot of commonality. And so we, you know, we just, this, this topic, if you're listening to this podcast, when it first comes out on, on Labor Day, Monday, September 6th, the following Saturday, September 11th is our next marriage evolution session and we're going to talk about this. We're going to talk about the impact of gaslighting and try to help people from both sides of the street get on the same page and understand why the gaslighting happened. It wasn't just manipulation. It was manipulation, but it wasn't just evil, you know, awful, I'm a horrible person manipulation. It was in defense and in protection of self and of alcohol and you know, and, and help the drinkers to understand that whatever reaction they got from their loved one is a natural reaction to the manipulation. And it might sound simple, or then again, I might be explaining it so badly that it might just sound confusing, but getting people from both sides of the equation on the same page is what marriage evolution is all about. And if you'd like to join us uh, for this next upcoming session or a future session, we'd love to have you check us out at marriageevolution.org. This is the program where we bring the couples together um, to work on the relationship, and um, I think it's I think it's really important. Yep, I think it is. I think it's good to hear other spouses talk about each of their stories, because then you realize, oh, this isn't just like you said, unique between you and I. This is something that happens a lot. Yeah. And this is the effects, side effects of alcoholism in a marriage or a, rela- or a relationship. So Absolutely. Well, Sherry, I'm going to spend the rest of the day trying to decide in my head whether it's gas lit or gas lighted for the past tense. And you know what I'm going to do? What? Not think about that at all. I'd rather be you. Before you go, we hope you'll consider these three resources. If you love or loved an alcoholic, we offer support and connection in our Echoes of Recovery group. Check us out at echoesofrecovery.org. If you are a high-functioning alcoholic seeking methods and connection in early sobriety, we're ready for you at shoutsobriety.org. No matter who you are, there's something for you in our book, Sober Evolution, Evolve into Sobriety and Recover Your Alcoholic Marriage. 
go to SoberEvolution.org. For my wife, Sherry Salis, I'm Matt Salis. Thanks for listening to the Untoxicated Podcast.